Hey guys, welcome to Between the Pints Brew News, your source for the business side of craft beer. I'm your host, Aaron Gore, a.k.a. the kind of guy who does Stairway to Heaven at karaoke, and I'm joined by my co-host today. Ryan Moses, the beer counselor and owner of Craft Beer Consulting, LLC. How you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing better than the people who created the movie Gotti, which apparently got a whopping zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. <laughs> the things you have to do to get a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not even sure from Justin to Kelly has a zero on, on Rotten Tomatoes. That is like, holy shit. Is this about like Gotti the crime boss guy? Yeah. Wow. How do you make a, a mobster movie and make it that bad? You cast John Travolta in a, another bad hairpiece. <laughs> so Gotti. his entire career? Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> well, when the guy's uh, resume has such illustrious films as Battlefield Earth, uh, it's really kind of impressive he was able to make such a stinker. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, he's it's a person with. That's one of those people who you you wonder why there. There was about like a five year period yeah. where John Travolta was relevant, and he spent the like last thirty desperately trying to convince us that he still is. I've become convinced me and my friends in college came came up with the idea that there are two parts of being a successful movie star one is actually having talent at least enough talent the other is having the ability to choose the correct roles for yourself and that's a talent in and of itself which is intriguing because mark Wahlberg has neither of those things and yet is somehow still famous well we Kevin Costner has neither of those things, and yet somehow is still famous. The list goes on. <laughs> well, we came up with it because we were comparing Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, whereas that Matt is true. has a much better ability to pick good projects and good movies than Ben does, and it's just amazing. I mean, they're both still successful, but you look at them and they have... And you look at who's they, more well-respected, too. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. They have varying degrees of respect. Matt Damon is much more respected as an actor than... Ben is, and I don't think they're very much different as actors. Honestly. No, no, they they're both incredibly talented Boston boys. I mean, they they grew up best friends, and you know, I, I I've gone on record of of saying sorry to my Bostonian wife, who I love and adore, and is the light of my life. But I hate Boston, <laughs> and the city just frustrates the hell out of me. But and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that. Uh, but I love Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I, I love yeah. those guys, and the fact that it, it's the two of them who I think would be like world-class actors in anything, and Mark Wahlberg as the three <laughs> representative people of the city. I've liked Mark Wahlberg in exactly one thing, and that's the Ted franchise. You didn't like him in the Italian job? Okay, I liked him in the... No, I didn't like him in the Italian job. I liked the Italian job. <laughs> Let, let's be real here as, as to... As to what really was the driver there. And the Mini Coopers, which is basically the reason everybody likes the Italian job. Yeah, it's a pretty quotable movie. Oh, that's a fun, yeah, like, I've, it's, that's much, I've rewatched that movie probably twice in the last three weeks. And that kind of came out around that same time. It was basically, you had Fast and Furious, then immediately after had uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. Speak, speaking Great, of terrible actors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Angelina Jolie with White Dreads, though. But uh, And then you had Italian Job, like, right in the heels. Everybody was like, oh, another ripoff. It's like, dude, n- not even close. Yeah. Not <laughs> even close. All right. Well, yeah, on to things that actually have to do with beer. <laughs> Thank you for uh, bearing with us, everybody. Uh, yeah, we digress, n- as we always do. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of the one thing that's consistent on this show. I was talking to uh, someone within the beer industry who will go unnamed, I say, as I just found a bobby pin on my laptop. <laughs> I, what is happening here? Dude, I swear to God, I find my wife's bobby pins in the weirdest place. I'm not even going to get into some of the random-ass places I found her bobby pins, but uh, I was talking to somebody within the beer industry. She's like, yeah, I loved your show. You, you guys are so nerdy, and you, you were talking about comic books and movies. I was like, what about the beer talk? She's like, you got to it eventually. <laughs> well, yeah, Thanks. That's pretty much what happens, yes. We say, as we did an entire episode, pairing beer with the Black Panther movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's us. So uh, what stories you got for us today, Ryan? Uh, well, we will start off with Big Beer versus Bro Beer. Miller Coors and Paps Brewing Bitter Legal Battle is headed to trial in November. Basically what is happening is Miller and Paps have been... Paps has been contract brewing with Miller for like 20 years. And Miller is looking at the contract, which expires in two years, and saying we might not renew it because we... Because the same reason that your favorite brewery might be closing. It's, you know, the economics of it is not, doesn't work for Miller Coors anymore. So Paps is suing them 
to basically make them keep the contract. <laughs> which, <laughs> which, okay. So you had a contract clearly delineating the terms as well as when they end, and your argument is that they want to end it when the agreement ends, yeah. and you're suing them for this. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, basically the contract comes up, expires in 2020, and there are two options to renew that Miller Coors, hold, Miller Coors holds. They're probably not going to renew, so Paps sues him. And I'm thinking what Paps is probably trying to do is get the rights, maybe, the only thing I can think of is they're trying to win the brewery where the where Blue Ribbon is brewed. That's the only thing I can think of. Which I, I, I still have no idea what legal ground they have here. Like, what's your argument? You had a contract. Contract came to an end. They don't want to renew. I I literally don't know <laughs> what the next step is. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm, I might have to ask Leah about this because this is kind of, she was mostly, she is mostly a civil attorney. So I'm going to ask her and see. She went to law school, so she automatically has <laughs> at least a few years more experience with all of this yeah, than either like of us. Like I said, she was a civil attorney. So Here, I'm between the pipes. Neither yeah. one of us is a lawyer. Here's some news for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those where you're just like, I don't... Okay, you're going to sue them. And, and here's okay. some of the brands that will suffer from it, too. I mean, we're looking at basically all of their legacy brands. So yeah. uh, Natty Bow, they're at risk. Uh, Paps Blue Ribbon, the actual original Paps, it's at risk. Uh, Old Style's at risk. I mean, somewhere we just gave a hipster a freaking heart attack by <laughs> announcing this. Let's see, Miller Coors operates seven brewers in the U.S. They're, they're closing the one here in North Carolina, which is another fight that's starting to happen or has happened already, but it's probably going to close. They're closing one in Irwindale, California. Uh, yeah, they're... Yeah, Miller Coors ain't doing too well. Yeah, they're closing. <laughs> it's like I don't understand. Again, I don't understand. And this this will come up later in the show. Just how like it's on, they've only seen like a one and a half percent decline year over year in terms of sales, but a one and a half percent decline can still have a profound impact on yeah. a business. Yeah, I've been at one of my favorite movies about the um, financial crisis and the bank crisis that happened with the a few years ago in the United States was is Margin Call. And in trying to describe the problem, one of the guys says they he basically they compare it to you know trying to find a seat when the music stops, you know. <laughs> and basically, what happened it what one of the analysts says is you know if we've already started to have problems and the music hasn't stopped, it's just slowing down. If the music stops, we will lose we will have more debt than the actual valuation of our company. You're done. <laughs> yeah. So basically what Miller Coors is seeing is the music hasn't stopped. It's just slowed down a lot, and they're already having to close breweries. Yeah, That's it, a problem. It, it won't take much to push them over yeah. that edge. Uh, speaking a little about that, if you don't mind me uh, yeah, cutting ahead. in for a second, speaking of Miller Coors, just to tie that in, they – uh, announce their predictions for how much the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs are going to affect their business. $40 million hit just from those tariffs to Miller Coors. Now, we are not what you'd call Miller Coors sympathizers here, nor do we try to turn this show particularly political outside of beer-related issues. This is a beer-related issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this has been an absolute massive hit. I think they were talking something around $350 million they were expecting the negative impact on the industry to uh, be from these tariffs alone. We have seen U.S. businesses that rely on imported steel and aluminum starting to shut down. Uh, it is driving up the cost of packaged products. So if you like taking cans home, have fun with that. <laughs> and now that we're starting to see some uh, breweries switch towards glass bottles, we're even seeing plastic bottles start to uh, enter the conversation, uh, we might see a little bit of a reversion on that. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but the trend towards cans has, has proven to be one that may be putting beer as a whole in a dangerous position here. Margins are slim enough on package. Yeah, it was one of those interesting things is running a retail place when we first started and this was literally only three years when we first started everything was in bottles but over the course of like the first year and a half like that everything just started switching the cans and it was that was amazing. a ridiculously loud snap by the way <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even that close to the mic that was a ridiculously loud snap yeah, but you know like you said everyone is going to cans mostly because they're easier to package 
easier to ship and easier for customers to carry. If they cost too much, that none of that actually matters. Oh yeah, yeah. This this could be an absolutely disastrous thing for the industry at large. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely going to hit the guys up top more than it's going to hit the guys down yeah. below. Especially if breweries, if craft breweries are smart, they don't over leverage in the package anyways. But well, yeah. <laughs> well, 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 if they were smart, I yeah. added that caveat. Uh, but it does create this unenviable position where, where just the idea of purchasing cans, which is a significant portion of the cost of a packaged beer, uh, that, that gets driven up. And even if you have to raise the price on your beer by 50 cents, it's especially if you're one of the macro brewers, it's, they don't have a whole lot of price elasticity to play with like craft beer does. They've and cut even their prices beers. so much. Their margin is literally razor thin. Yeah, I mean they're working off of volumes, and, yeah. and that's also creates a situation where the commodity craft that we've started to see come out—the fizzy yellow beer that's being marketed in fifteen packs at you know thirteen dollars for a fifteen pack—that disappears. Yeah, you can't do that. It's already hard enough. I mean, the first to go will definitely be things like all day IPA, which uh, I mean hops are expensive. Um, those will be the first to disappear, and then you'll start seeing some of these breweries eyeing up their lager options, lager, uh, eyeing up their pilsner options that they may otherwise have been considering throwing in a package in these large-scale uh, bulk format packaging, and they'll back away from it. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it's Which is a shame, because I like being able to buy a 15-pack of delicious beer to drink while I'm mowing my lawn. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where when you create a policy you should think through the total effects of the policy, not just what you imagine may happen, but we will leave that there. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, um, especially out in the industry. Um, and, and just to clear things up, guys, I, I don't drink an entire 15-pack while I'm mowing my lawn. That would make me an alcoholic. I drink a 12-pack. Uh, <laughs> so what else you got for us, Ryan? Portland brewer Lee Hedgman defies stereotypes about beer and race. Um, Lee Hedgman, she is an African-American brewer in Portland, and she works for Edgefield and Groundbreaker. And she started, as most people, well, I'll say, yeah, as most people who are brewers started as a home brewer. <laughs> like her story, she was doing a PhD dissertation about female teachers of color and emotional labor. So she brewed on the side just to, you know, relax, <laughs> really. Which... <laughs> I know so many people who brew to relax. I'm like, that is a terrible <laughs> activity to relax. There's so much cleaning and it's hot and it's it's well, a lot of effort. Well, the clean while well, you're cleaning and that's just kind of one of those mindless things you can just do and do and do. Yeah, and I say that, but I do clean it. my kitchen when I'm yeah. having a bad day. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's fair. Yeah, and but one of the interesting things about this is she uses a lot of. <coughs> strange ingredients and she started just because she was a home brewer and it sounds like she was just a curious home brewer and she had stuff laying around and went ooh what will this taste like in beer and just started doing that which is kind of the story of most home brewers <laughs> yes. it's, yeah what do i got in my fridge i don't need asparagus yeah. beer it is so a lot of the things she's done is a lot of things she's known for are her dessert beers and her she did a glitter beer which I love seeing people get so riled up about glitter beers. The <laughs> fact that we one of the first ones was right here in Charlotte, just I get such a kick. I have friends who have reached out to me from literally across the country, like, "Have you seen this stupid shit?" And it's like, it it doesn't affect the taste of the beer whatsoever. Yeah. And we spent three hundred years trying to get beer as clear as possible because that's the right look for beer. Throwing glitter in is the same exact philosophy. Yeah. Got take take relax, actually, have fun for a, a fucking change. That's actually one of the things she said. Just like I. She almost wishes she hadn't done the glitter beer because she wants people to think about the taste of the beer and the glitter is just kind of like, I did that because it was fun, but now Ooh, no one talks shiny. about, yeah. but now no one talks about what the beer tastes like and that kind of annoys her. It does change the dialogue. Like yeah. uh, Trapper Keeper from Bold Missy, the one right here in Charlotte, like you look at reviews of that beer and everybody's talking about the glitter. No one's talking about the fact it's it's actually a pretty delightful yeah. high citrus, uh, you know, bright saison, and it's it's a really a, a crying shame because it's a damn good beer, and it would be being lauded as a damn good beer if not for the fact they put glitter in it. But it also raises a lot of attention and gets your name out there. Yeah. The other thing she talks about is her dessert-inspired beers. She tries to not make them overly sweet. Oh, thank God. Which is yes. She's not funky Buddha. <laughs> you know my feelings on that brewery, right? There's funky, <laughs> yeah, there's funky Buddha, and there's another one who is recently kind of located here in Charlotte. Southern Tier? Yes. 
There's also Declaw. Declaw. There's a there's a lot of these burgers. They throw a lot of. And I don't hate all of them. I mean, some of the super sweet stuff Southern Tier does is pretty good, good, but some of it's really (laughs) bad. And I did. This is, the, this is the roll of the dice you're taking. And yeah, and I did share. I did send you a picture of the Colossus from Duclaw that I drank a couple of weeks ago, the twenty percent, whatever it was, which I hold would have been a better beer if it wasn't twenty percent. Well, at twenty percent, <laughs> it's not a beer; it's a cognac. <laughs> let's let's be real here. I see. Oh, and I also saw she has a little bit of history at Pines Brewing Company in Portland. Yeah. Which anybody who's ever been to Portland, Pines is such a little hidden gem. They open up with coffee in the mornings and it's like a little breakfast place yeah and then they transition around like 11 30 into to serving beer the beer is fantastic the food is incredible the coffee is really good <laughs> I, I, I love that place and she's also a distiller which is interesting too which i i yeah so it's a fun fun profile on yeah. a, a demographic you don't see a whole lot of in the beer world and it's a shame that it's so notable but by the same token, it, it really is, and, and we need to be reaching that point where instead we're looking at her beer first instead of uh, you know noting the fact that she happens to be a queer black woman in the beer industry. Yeah. And the favorite part is, fewer strides have been made when it comes to race, however. Hedgeman is one of the few people of color in Portland's craft beer scene. She occasionally gets confused with Annie Johnson, a black brewer who doesn't even live in Oregon. What do you... Ooh. I managed to spill beer. <laughs> wow. After Aaron, Aaron decided did. to spill beer all over the damn countertop. Uh, which Luckily, I no hope, electronics got hit. Yeah, yeah, I'm really hoping that nobody from our, our studio actually winds Don't up worry, Garrett. Podcast. Nothing got damaged. <laughs> nothing happened. I didn't spill shit. This was actually one elaborate joke. Uh, <laughs> so in, anyways, back to the story. Oh Yeah, I was just reading the line out of the article about... Um, Lee Hedgeman, and she occasionally gets confused with Annie Johnson, a black brewer who was the North American Home Brewer of the Year in 2013, who doesn't even live in Oregon. Like, what? It, and if you look at pictures of them, they do not look, you know, alike. Which is so funny because when you look at me, I look like literally everybody in the craft beer industry, and yet I get mistaken for nobody. So, so, so some people just ain't trying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's just a good little uh, profile of a someone who is very who stands out in the craft beer world. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, fun profile. Uh, what else you got for us? All right, from the fun to the not so fun. Denver's craft beer craft brewery scene filling up, and basically just talks about how the Denver craft beer scene has exploded pretty much like everywhere else but over the let's see what is it, in the last three years they've gone from 48 breweries to now over 70 breweries plus the other little fly in the ointment that is probably really affecting how craft breweries are being successful or unsuccessful in denver is over that three years where they went from 48 breweries to over 70 this little thing called legalized marijuana happened <laughs> oh man that's and, uh, yeah i think that's i don't think that's taking a huge chunk out of craft beer but it's one of those it's taking it's enough of a chunk that it's affecting it's affecting the margins and if you don't really know what you're doing and if you're up against it you're just not you cannot succeed beer is a slim margin industry yeah. to start with and like we were talking about it even a one and a half percent drop can can be severely affecting yeah. And we're talking upwards of a 15% hit is what legalized marijuana can take out of craft beer. That's yeah. not only not, not insignificant, that is massively significant. 15, yeah. Imagine if you lost 15% of your paycheck overnight. Now imagine that you know, in order to make money, you had to sell half the things in your house and then buy them back at the end of every month. That's basically what <laughs> yeah. a brewery is. That's basically how breweries stay alive, and that's basically yeah. how breweries pay their bills. So when you're taking 15% out of that, and your bills don't change, and your contracts for hops don't change, and your contracts for malt don't change, and you're having a hard time you know, gaining new consumers among an increasingly crowded marketplace, it is incredible how significant yeah. 15% can be. So yeah, you have on one end you have marijuana taking fifteen percent of your potential market, and then you also go from you almost basically double the number of breweries over three years. I, that's that. 
that that's unsustainable <laughs> in the long yes. term. And you know, some people see seventy breweries and they point to San Diego, they point to Portland, they port, point to Seattle, and they say that's that's a lot. That's not that many. And to a degree, they're right. But it, legalized marijuana, man, it, it is such a burden upon the craft beer industry, especially in a, a, a city that already has a high cost of living. Yes. So there's already few enough dollars to go around. And yeah. yes, it's a fast-growing city, but it's not in Austin. It's not a Charlotte. Uh, As someone who looked at housing prices in Denver and compared them to the ones in Charlotte, yes, it is in a very expensive city. To and once to. you were done crying, you decided to uh, <laughs> buy a house here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so some statistics. I mean, tying into this, Beer Institute's annual meeting happened uh, last week, and they talked a little bit about marijuana and just some of the impact. They uh, actually dealt with BDS Analytics, which is a company that – uh, does some market research on sales within the cannabis industry. So just some things to keep in mind. For one, legalized cannabis, even though it's only available in a tiny handful of states, is already a $9 billion industry. To give you some sense of scale, in 2017, craft beer was only about $27 billion industry. So we're talking it's already more than a third the craft beer industry, and it's significantly newer and, and has a significantly smaller geographic market to cover. Yeah, that that is absolutely startling. On top of that, people who we had we both craft beer and legalized marijuana have almost the exact same core demographics. It tends to be working professionals who tend to be between about 25 and 35, sometimes as high as 40, uh, people who have more disposable income, full-time jobs, decent educations. It's a luxury item. And not only that, it's a luxury intoxicant. Yeah. A lot of people see weed and they see beer and they're like, oh, those are two entirely separate things. They really, really aren't from a consumer perspective. Yeah. So some of the things that they found when they were doing these studies, uh, for one, uh even though medical marijuana use has dropped, we've really seen uh, recreational use climb in legal places. Well, that's places, because a lot of people who were, we're claiming medical it, marijuana. Exactly. A hundred percent. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you're not wrong, right? <laughs> uh, so for one, uh, about 75% of uh, cannabis users also drink, which is a significantly higher proportion than any other real segment of the population. Uh, not only that, uh, 54% of cannabis users drink beer, um, which is a lot higher than people who just accept the use of marijuana or who re reject its use outright, which follows a little bit. Uh, I mean, people who you know don't do weed and are opposed to weed and don't even want to legalize are probably not going to be big drinkers. You don't see a whole lot yeah. of people are stamping their feet and they're like, I love a good beer. Unless not the devil's tobacco. Unless you're in a distillery, then yes. You well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is also true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not only that, but they uh, tend to consume more alcohol, uh, and they're also significantly more likely to drink craft beer than are uh, non-cannabis consumers. Which makes sense because the demographic, like you said, the demographics basically overlap. Almost completely overlap. Yeah. About, I mean, you're looking at craft beer, and they got about a 20% you know, share of the market right now. It's about 30% among cannabis users just for local and regional craft. If we're adding national craft to that, we're looking at closer to 40%, which is a pr pretty damn significant, yeah. uh, which means that these are a lot of the same folks. So yeah. even if they're not, even if they have decided that they are going to still continue to drink uh, craft beer as well as smoke marijuana, there's only so many dollars to go yeah. around. And there's, they're competing for the same dollar, even if they are, uh, even if those dollars aren't being spent at the same time, the same yeah. occasion. And it's, some of that is borne out. I mean, there, there's uh, been some some discussion about the fact that a lot of people who uh, are cannabis consumers don't see about half of them don't see cannabis and alcohol as being appropriate for the same occasions. The issue with that is twofold. First, it means that half of them still do. Yeah. And the part that I don't think a lot of people have touched on is the idea that what this means is that for half of those consumers, there are occasions for which beer doesn't even get a chance to compete. They're disqualified simply by virtue of marijuana being legal. Yeah. Because there are occasions that they don't think beer is as appropriate as marijuana. So this, this puts beer in a tough position where they're basically having to fight this juggernaut, fast-growing industry. It's growing almost 50% year over year in the states where it's legalized. And while 5% growth, I've made the point time and time again for craft beer, is still an incredibly healthy rate of growth, it ain't 50. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. 
there's a slight difference there. Uh, on top of that, only 13% of cannabis consumers uh, actually consume both beer and weed at the same time. Contrary to what you hear from a lot of anecdotal reports, they don't tend to do them both at once. Yeah. So what this means is there's plenty of occasions where people are sitting down smoking a blunt and they're not going to crack a beer. Yeah, It's one of those, I've just when we're sitting here talking, I've been thinking, right now in Denver, you basically have the, like you said, the demographics overlap so much, basically you have people deciding dispensary or liquor store when they go out to get whatever they're going to get. Here's an interesting thing. Grocery stores will be able to sell real beer starting, I guess, in a couple of months in Colorado. How will that affect it? Because then... I actually think that'll be a positive thing for for beer. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably going to help craft beer because... Instead of making, instead of having to make a special trip to go get your beer at a liquor store, you can now just go when you're in the middle of buying your groceries. You'll see whatever. It's an impulse buy at that yeah. point. Yeah, you're, exactly. you can buy it on site. And people outside of consumer marketing don't realize how lazy people are. Oh, and la- I'm people a, are just yes. yeah. <laughs> I will freely acknowledge this. Like my so so we have an Aldi near our house, and we have a Harris Teeter near our house, and. You go to Aldi, you can get most of the stuff you need, and you'll your bill will be thirty percent cheaper yeah. than it would be if you bought that stuff at Harris Teeter. But, but there's always going to be a few yeah. things you have to get at Harris Teeter, anyways. So you can either make two trips and still save yourself a significant chunk of change, or you can just go to Harris Teeter, get it all, and not have to also <laughs> drive to Aldi. Exactly. I hate going to Aldi. <laughs> it drives my wife nuts, and she's right to to be driven nuts by this because she's like, just make the two trips. But Harris Teeter's got it right all. There. Like, <laughs> and I can buy everything. It's got everything. The number of times I've settled for shitty beer I've known has been on the shelf for eight months because it happens to be in the beer section at Harris Teeter is, is absolutely <laughs> incredible. So when people have to make that decision of liquor store dispensary, there's a solid chance they're going to choose dispensary. And if they're doing that, they're not making the second trip to go get yeah, a beer. Exactly. Whereas if you can get it, at, if they're already making a grocery store trip and beer is there, that's that's hugely significant. They're just going to buy it there. And if they've. <laughs> They've already smoked a little bit before they've gone to the grocery store. Probably going to buy, buy everything. <laughs> <laughs> buy all the beer and all the Doritos. <laughs> oh, man, yes. Yeah. So this is definitely a story that I'll be interested to kind of keep a watch over. I mean, we're talking a potentially enormous amount of business that could be taken from craft beer, especially even more than domestic. Yeah. Not only do they drink more craft beer than the average consumer, but they uh, – it's competing for a lot of the same space. These are people who, uh, according to polls, and I can pull up the exact numbers, they are they are more than the average person okay with spending a little more money for higher quality. I think it's 45% of cannabis users are willing to spend more money for higher quality, and that's a similar proportion that you see among craft beer drinkers. Yeah. So that says that they are willing to... They're willing to spend that money that otherwise might have been going towards craft on um, weed. Yeah. And as weed diversifies, and I mean, beer is beer. Beer is a liquid. It is something you drink. It's amazing the shit that you can put THC and CBD in and <laughs> and, and still satisfy the pot smoker. And, and yeah. so uh, from a ideological standpoint, I am all in favor of legalized marijuana. I, I see no reason if alcohol and tobacco are legal why you can make an, any sort of logical argument yeah. why weed isn't. But man, as a person who loves craft beer and is deeply invested in the craft beer industry, this this could be a, yeah. if not a silver bullet, at, at least a hamstringing. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said, it's it's going to be one of those things that like, and I, when I told you about the article, I was like, yeah, Denver is the warning light for craft beer because everything that's happening in craft beer is already happened in Denver, basically. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's given the fact it's not the largest of the, the American craft beer cities, despite its importance historically, it really has been a canary in the coal mine yeah. for decade plus now on, yeah. on new trends, new risks, new, new changes within the industry. Yeah. yeah and if, if there's one thing I can't reiterate enough, if you're within the craft beer industry, the single most important thing that the industry can do right now is think about its long-term future. And that's a hard thing to do when you have a lot of disparate businesses that are technically competing with each other, but that sense of camaraderie, sense of community means that it can be done. Because right now, it's in the middle of a zeitgeist. Yeah, Crap beer is about as mainstream as it's going to get. It, it's within people's minds. You're hearing it mentioned non-ironically in TV shows and movies and stuff now. It is something... 
pretty much everyone's at least aware of, even if they don't necessarily drink craft beer themselves or even if they're only casual craft beer consumers. It, it is riding a wave right now. But as we have seen in the last year, a minor slowdown, even if the growth is still happening, can be disastrous for a lot of these breweries who really their success has been dependent upon a growth industry. They yeah. Their success is wholly dependent upon unsustainable business models that cannot work outside of an industry that is wildly successful. Yeah. So unless craft beer is willing to reorganize and willing to put that greater focus on long-term sustainability and on... Uh, focusing on some of these long-term problems that'll come in conflict, craft beer is never going to replace macro beer. As much as we might want it to, it's never going to grow larger than probably about 30% of the market. Yeah. So it'd be very, very easy for craft beer one day to go back down to 2%. And unless they are thinking about ways to keep that from happening and stay relevant and tap into demographics that are right now woefully underserved, uh, these are the things that the industry really needs to put their focus on. Yeah. And you know what would be good if someone had a consulting company that could help young and startup craft breweries make that transition to create a good business plan and get yourself started off on a good foot. A shame. Nothing like that exists except for, wait a minute. I heard about this guy, Ryan Moses, who's starting something like that. Oh, you mean craft beer consulting LLC? Yes. Yes. If you need help with your new startup or craft brewery, just give me a call. I'll, See what I can do for you. <laughs> My rates are reasonable. I, I, lo- I love how this just turned into the plug show. Wow, that's shameless. You you slid that in like like not, that was that was just clean. All right. <laughs> oh, and I have one more article though, and another kind of not good article. Uh, Florida Craft, ah, where is it? Florida Craft Beer Guild, Big Beer says Big Beer is pushing us out of Publix. Basically. You're, and you're basically CBA, technically an arm of the kaiju that is Anheuser-Busch in Bev. Is <laughs> I, <laughs> the first time I hear somebody who's never heard our podcast refer to Anheuser-Busch as a kaiju, I'm going to be like, we have done something special. That is Fred. That is the brainchild of Ryan Moses. Basically, they've, they've been bigfooting all the smaller craft, beer, craft breweries in Florida out of Publix, pretty much. <laughs> is this the best way to put it? A lot of them have just started to disappear. I mean, and for those of you from outside of the American Southeast, Publix is the main grocery store chain within Florida. Yeah. They also have really good fish and meat, and you know, pretty you know, pretty solid food overall. Prices are a little high, and I like Publix. Wow. <laughs> Prepared says, food's good. <laughs> I'll plug them. I don't care. <laughs> in the article, it says the Publix, the overall shrink, it has over has shrank its craft beer section overall to in half to eight feet in like the last year. Bring up more space for domestic beers such as Budweiser, Bud Light, and imports such as Corona. <laughs> I mean, I, I got kind of. I, I know the craft breweries in this are, are making a an argument that there's a lot of kind of strong arm and bully tactics, kind of forcing them out. And, but it's also public's looking at what are we going to sell the most of? <laughs> yeah, and and we've talked in the past that there, there's been several kind of kind of breakdown analyses of sales at the grocery store level because for a while there, every grocery store in the grandmother was expanding their craft section as much as they could. The people who are buying craft beer at grocery stores, I mean, they'll they'll definitely sell some, but the kind of investment you have to make in inventory to sell equivalent goods and make probably less profit. It is significant. So a lot of grocery stores have started to retract their craft sections and, and start to reduce SKUs to only the uh, the ones that are selling well. All they care about is is the shelf full because as as you as you well know, grocery stores don't stock their beer shelves. That's up to the distributors. distributors. Oh yeah. And if and guess who has like an army of people to come in and stock shelves? A B and Bev and Miller Coors. So. True, true story, and and this is without naming the name of the brewery I used to work for, Granite Falls. Uh, we uh, we had earned a spot on the shelf at a local food line. Uh, you know, got some of our product in the cold case. I mean, you got warm shelves at grocery stores. You got the cold cases. Uh, warm shelves move way slower than cold cases. Yeah. This is just fact. People tend to buy cold beer, even if they're not planning on consuming it within the next three weeks. They tend to buy cold beer more. So. Earning a spot in the cold case is the only way to reliably move beer out of a grocery store, period. So we finally earned a space at this particular one. We'd been selling well in the warm shelf, got in, we were doing great. This queued up, I, I, I swear to God, this queued up a like months-long battle between 
our reps and the reps at the local bud distributor of <laughs> they would move us off the shelf and back to the warm shelf even though we had gotten put in the set by the store manager we'd put move their shit out and put it back <laughs> in and this would go back and forth every time we'd have somebody in the store. We had something similar go on uh, at uh, one of the Total Wines down here. Um, I actually forget which one it was. But, yeah, it was the same exact thing. We had a spot on the shelf, and they would move us out, and we'd move them out, and they'd move us out, and we'd move them out. And the store wasn't about to get involved. They didn't really care. They don't care. Well, the shelf's full. Something's That's on the freaking care. shelf. Yeah, this is drama they don't need. I don't blame them for not getting involved. It got so bad, I started hiding their product around the store. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, listen, I didn't throw it away. I didn't damage it. It just happened to wind up behind the milk. So, <laughs> so I mean, it, it's, it can be brutal to fight for grocery store space. And it's one of the things that I try to drive home towards breweries that I do con- consultations with is you can't win at that game. No, I was playing that game because the owner already had us heading down that track, and at that point I was trying to retain what space we had. But you will never win at that game. It's not going to be worth it to win at that game. The volumes aren't high enough anyways, and if you're self-distroed especially, uh, receiving doors close at 1130 at the latest, and I have never met a more miserable set of humans than receiving managers at grocery stores. So yeah, Receiving managers in retail stores across the board. Terrible. Just, if you're well, they re- have a crap job. If you're, yeah, yeah. If you're a receiving manager, you listen to this. I'm not. This isn't a judgment on you. I get it. <laughs> Your, your job sucks. Like, <laughs> I get why you're cranky all the time, but you're cranky all the time. <laughs> so, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I don't think there's a whole lot that the Florida Craft Beer Guild can really do about it. But they do mention the um, craft freedom lawsuit in this. Because they mentioned Anheuser-Busch is part of an ongoing North Carolina lawsuit, which a document came to light last month showing the conglomerate made a deal with a rally distributor to favor AB products over all others. Yeah, like, okay. Those have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> no, they don't. But like, this, this, I was talking to a friend who sent me the article. He's like, "Oh, did you know about this?" I'm like, "That's like one of the open secrets of craft of like beer, hundred percent industry, beer industry. Everyone knows what Anheuser Busch does." Oh and, yeah, yeah. They they've yeah. been. I was looking at some statistic. Like just in the last ten years, has been some like forty eight times they've been fined for shit like that. Yeah, they, they don't care. It's cheaper for them yeah. to accept the fine Again, and, and hope they don't get caught than it is to actually you know go ahead and stop doing it. It's a Thirty-seven billion dollar company. It's a line two million item for them. Your two million dollar fine for what you item. did in North Carolina doesn't yep. mean jack shit to them, honestly. Absolute line <laughs> item. Oh man, that's all I got for this week. What do you got? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, going back a little to uh, the Beer Institute's uh, annual meeting. For those of you who aren't as uh, uh, you know necessarily in the industry, geeky the, as us. Yeah, as geeky. <laughs> for those of you who aren't nerds. Uh, like Ryan and I, the Beer Institute is basically an advocacy group for the beer industry in general, and that includes Macro Beer as opposed to Brewers Association, which is focused entirely on craft beer. Uh, as such, it tends to be pretty well dominated by Miller Coors and ABI, but they also accomplish a decent amount of good work for you know just the industry at large. They're one of the primary ones that's flexing their political might against the tariffs right now. Uh, well, in their annual meeting, they actually wound up uh, having Bridget Brennan, CEO of a Chicago-based consulting group called The Female Factor, which kind of focuses on realistic marketing to women, uh, which is a... <laughs> In other words, not what... Not like, marketing to women. <laughs> basically. Yeah, so so often. like, like Treating them like human beings with their own minds and thoughts. God, God forbid, <laughs> right? Uh, and they had her in to kind of talk about the fact that the beer industry has done a tr- historically <laughs> terrible job. She, uh, she has a few. Uh, oh, few you mean the jobs. industry that like markets beer with women in bikinis? The Swedish. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey, 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 hey! The Swedish bikinis. They were professionals, Ryan. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, well, she did have a couple of really good quotes. Uh, she said, uh, we can't underestimate that there has been, from a beer industry standpoint, a 150-year head start marketing the product to guys as a guy's product. And she's 100% right, yes. for exactly the reasons you illustrated. <laughs> and honestly, even if we're talking about less explicit or less, uh, uh, you know, arguably misogynistic marketing, we are just talking about the fact that historically the marketing for beer has been focused at Absolutely. men. Yeah. Uh, it, it has been closely tied to masculinity, male activities, male environs, uh, and she makes a decent amount of points about the fact that we're ignoring not only 50% of the freaking population, but as we're seeing the beer industry itself retract by about 35 million barrels last year, that's not insignificant, that's about 11 yeah. billion pints. It's a whole lot of beer retracted just last year, and, and most of that was lost to wine or to spirits, which are doing a much better job at 
marketing across the aisle. Uh, and if you look at some of the statistics, it's even more damning because 80% of all purchasing decisions are made, made by, by women. women. Yeah. Now, that's a kind of misleading when it comes to beer because that covers all purchasing statistics, yeah. but it still gives an indication oh. of how much influence they have within a, any sort of market economy. Like you were talking about the, we were talking about the <laughs> marijuana and beer, and we mentioned grocery stores will be able to sell beer in Colorado. said beer will be an impulse buy. If the person who's doing 80% of the buying is a woman, and she's going to impulse buy beer for her husband or significant other. just Or even for herself, yeah. but she happens to be at the grocery store. Guess yeah. where she's probably going to be buying the product? The grocery store. The grocery yes. store. <laughs> Again, we hate taking <laughs> multiple trips. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and she uh, she makes another point that 40% of U.S. households uh, with children under the age of 18 include a mom who's the primary sole breadwinner. I know when our kid gets here, we're going to be in exactly that position. I, I know it may surprise a lot of you, but podcasting does not pay nearly as well as being a business analyst for a major <laughs> logistics company. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely don't make the bulk of the money. <laughs> uh, but she, does, she makes some excellent points about just some of the primary goals for when you are not in this, and she makes a point. You don't want to market to women. Yes. If you market to women, a lot of times it can a come across as, as condescending, you know, condescending, forced. A <laughs> uh, lot of times too, that's an unsustainable form of marketing. Yes. It's a one-off. So even if you make an impact, which is unlikely, because chances are they're just going to see it as exactly what it is. <laughs> yes. Let, let's throw this bone to women to try and see if we can rope them in. Afterwards, you're accomplishing nothing. So yeah. it's not going to get you any sort of long-term growth within the market. It's not going to get you any real top of mind. You know, the goal is just to drive an emotional connection that let women feel connected to the brand and inspired to buy the brand, which, uh, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that's the goal of all fucking marketing. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking of all the, like, spirits and wine and hard seltzer marketing I've seen recently, and it's like, it's not marketed towards women. It's, it may have women in the ad, but it's, this is good stuff to drink. This is what it does for you. You should drink it. Yeah, <laughs> seltzer has really been, I mean, if you look at the sales of LaCroix, like yeah. for a long time, conventional wisdom was women don't like carbonation. Look at the sales of LaCroix. <laughs> like, like, please, look at the primary consumer of Pellegrino. Like, yes. like, it's not a carbonation issue. Now, like, there is a, a segment of women who don't drink beer because they don't like feeling bloated, but I'll give you a hint. 40% of men who don't drink beer list that as it's, their reason yeah. for not drinking it as well. And I get it. There's nothing like feeling like you got to simultaneously burp, fart, and throw up when you're <laughs> drinking too many high-carb beers. So, so... I get the hesitation there, but uh, the goal should just be uh, make it an accepting environment. Make clear that this isn't, you know, something dudes drink when they go out to a sports bar. This is something yeah. that people drink when they're watching the game at home. Yes, and and that's all the change it takes. This is this is low impact stuff. Like this is not hard, people. Yes, low impact, and it's you know common sense. But we're talking about the beer industry where sometimes. <laughs> Us in common sense are like distant relatives who barely barely talk to each other. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about the most versatile beverage on the planet. The the number of women who I, I, they might be wine drinkers traditionally, and you're able to get them to jump across, you know, the, you know, the, the lines of the battlefield, so to speak, with a sour, or they tend to like a little more citrus and you've given them a fruited wit and people love to talk shit about quote girly drinks which drives me up a damn wall because even if they are girly drinks a that has nothing to do with the quality b why is is that a a bad thing how do you define it people have been men have been drinking a lot of these beers for thousands of years and i I hate to say it but apple teenies are fucking delicious ryan (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i think she made a lot of really good points of just you can crack open 50 percent of the marketplace with real simple not even force, just cognizant stuff. Just being like... Don't be a dumbass. <laughs> exactly. Simple. Simple, 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 people. I think that so might be the... Like, that might end up becoming our... Don't be a dumbass. <laughs> don't be a dumbass and don't be a dick. That's yeah. pretty much... That's pretty if much- you can accomplish those two things, congratulations. You'll be successful not just in beer, but pretty much anything. Like, I, yes. I feel like that should be the. I'm going to like write a little manifesto for my daughter. And I'll be like, if you can only remember two things, baby girl, here's what you remember don't be a dumbass and don't be a dick. If you can avoid those, congrats. You're successful. <laughs> on, to, on to other news. Real positive show today. 
actually has been. Actually, yeah, we've had, we had a decent amount of good news. That was actually a relatively positive yeah. story. It's just there's a lot of negative negative people out there. Uh, Crap Brew Alliance, who we've mentioned already on the show, uh, group that's part owned by Anheuser-Busch. Uh, most people are familiar with them for Red Hook, Widmer Brothers, Kona. They also hold minority stakes in Winwood Brewing, Cisco Brewing, and Appalachian Mountain Brewing right here in North Carolina. They just announced that their uh, Red Hook branded pub in Portsmouth, New Hampshire is going to be rebranding as a Cisco Brewing pub. Uh, I, I don't really know. I don't know if this is going to accomplish a whole lot. Give some folks some background. Red Hook has imploded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not helping Red Hook any. I mean, it's no. They uh, it's they dead recently man right now. Yeah, they, they closed the Red Hook Brewery in uh, Washington State. Uh, now they and they reopened a tap room that's focused on innovation brews, like a little brew pub in Seattle, which has been doing well. But uh, you know, it, a brew pub in Seattle is going to do well, even if it's Budweiser branded. <laughs> Uh, so, so rebranding this one to Cisco. I mean, it's a little closer. I mean, Cisco's based out of Nantucket. I, I have a lot of love for the brand. I mean, their beer was some of the first craft beer I ever had. They're they're kind of OG in the uh, New England, you know, craft beer scene. Their San Katie Light Lager was one of the first fizzy yellow beers uh, I had that was actually well made. But if you know anything about New England, you know that Massachusetts and New Hampshire are not the same state. <laughs> And I don't think that people from the little island community of Nantucket are really going to feel a whole lot of kinship up in New Hampshire uh, and vice versa. And honestly, Cisco's been kind of seeing declining sales over the years anyway, so it's not really like they're they're going with an A-list brand. If they rebranded at Kona, because when I think Hawaii, I think New Hampshire, uh, that, that almost ironically would have been a better option for them. So it, it's it's been funny to watch CBA just kind of, for a, for a, a company that's still seeing a net growth due to you the wonder, success of Kona. Yeah, I was going to say, you basically wonder why, then you just look at Kona. Oh, yeah, that, they, they have managed to <laughs> turn it. everything else into a dumpster fire while Kona sustains them. And I've said before, <laughs> I have an enormous amount of respect for Andy Thomas, the CEO. He, he He's a very good commentator on the beer industry, but man, like, they have one brand that sells. <laughs> It's been really kind of startling to see. So it'll be interesting to see how this winds up playing out and see if this is going to have really any sort of long-term positive effect. New Hampshire, it's what's new. And all my <laughs> West Wing heads out there, you know what I'm talking about. I have Thank no you. idea what you're talking about. It's That's a scene from also, West Wing. Also been me. on my list. Of shit. The moment I found out DeLay Hill was on West Wing, it got added ah, to my list of things I need Charlie to watch. Charlie is the man. Dude, so Psych is maybe me and my wife's favorite show ever, <laughs> other than maybe Doctor Who. The first so, season of Psych is one of the funniest things you will ever dude, watch in your life. Dude, and Gus is the best character on the show. <laughs> so like, I, I developed huge... Le- like I'm, I'm already added suits to my list of shows to watch just because DeLay Hill's on like the last season. <laughs> I, I, I think that man is just absolutely fantastic. Fantastic at everything. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, I think last but not least on the list of uh, news for the day, uh, there was a case brought by two guys from Massachusetts against <laughs> Anheuser Busch. Speaking of course, of fri- they're from Massachusetts. Yeah, speaking of frivolous fucking lawsuits. Uh, so two guys brought a lawsuit against Goose Island, uh, spe- uh, Anheuser Busch InBev, the owner of Goose Island, uh, indicating that they. Uh, were unable to get their refunds for an infected batch of Bourbon County. Uh, for those of you who miss it, the, uh, Bourbon County every year releases a handful of variants. They really went overboard this last year. Some uh, of the variants... Two years ago, I think. Was it two years ago? Yeah. Uh, like 2015. Yeah, it was 2015. That's what I said the whole time. <laughs> 2015, and uh, they did have a couple infected batches. They did apply a refund policy to it. It wasn't widely publicized, but the information was public and out there, and they honored it for a lot of customers. These guys are suing. Um, they they want a huge payout. Well, I, all right. They both spent maybe $600 in beer. Goose Island was going to give offer? them $8,000 each. And they said no. We want to take you to court. So basically, the, and yeah, basically, yeah, go ahead. So, <laughs> so this court case was tossed out by a federal uh, judge. So... I, I have a lot of feelings on this. I, I actually think this is a bigger story in the sense that it's not a story yeah. than it, it has gotten credit for being. First off, they had no fucking case. Second not off, a bit of one. You give me eight thousand dollars when I only spent six hundred. <laughs> what were they suing on? Like the trade value on, on the secondary? Like that's I absolutely so. preposterous. But 
and I, I'm saying this with, again, no sympathy towards Goose Island or Anheuser-Busch, but this case could have been very bad for craft beer as a whole yeah. if it was allowed to go through. Because imagine us going to court and a huge payout is required because of a batch of infected beer. Anheuser-Busch InBev, including all of their, their faux craft subsidiaries, have had less infected beer with the millions of barrels that they do than your average craft brewery has during a year. Yeah. So if this had gone through and they had won this case, the impact for every small brewer would have been huge. You would have seen almost no bugs used in breweries anymore because you can't afford to have Brett in yeah. a freaking brewery if there's a chance you send something out. doesn't taste the way it's supposed to be. Keep in mind, when we say infected beer, it couldn't have hurt them. It just didn't taste <laughs> good. good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not even like there's a chance of damages or like they endangered them. That's the, like, I have two things about this. First of all, the judge was kind of like, Take your eight thousand dollars each Shut and up, go please. away. <laughs> and secondly, the, I think the only reason they went through this far with the case was because it was A, B, and they're Beth. from Massachusetts and they're stubborn. <laughs> well, that love too. you, baby. <laughs> but, but it was A, B, and Beth, and they were like, if this had been, I don't know, they three figured, Floyds, they, they wouldn't have. They'd yeah, settle. They wouldn't have gone this long with like three Floyds. They would have, since this was A, B, and Beth. They figured if we take them to court long enough, they'll just give us. Again, I don't know what amount of money. I mean, they were going to give you $8,000. <laughs> take it. God damn, take it. <laughs> Guys, y'all, why was this a question? Yeah, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I'm glad it didn't go through. Uh, again, any money they had got, even if they got several million, would have been a drop in the bucket of ABI, but it would have had yeah. massive ramifications for craft beer uh, and would have opened a lot. I mean, the. I got an infected batch of beer from Schmaltz Brewing when I'd only been in the industry for about a year. And and even then, you realize, you know, this is an artisanally crafted product. Shit happens. Yeah. It, buyer beware. These things happen. A few times I've gotten the And if I'd gone to the like, brewery and I'd okay. told them, I would fully expect them to be like, hey, let's throw you a six-pack, you know, yeah. our bad. But, yeah. you know, trying to – if you start opening up some of these small, you know, family-owned breweries up to massive lawsuits – now he's going to slow down the rate of, of you know brewery creation. It's going to kill innovation, and it, it's going to create an environment of paranoia and fear between the consumers and the breweries. It's not a healthy environment whatsoever. Yeah, and that, like Epic had the same problem this last year with I think the triple barrel of yeah triple barrel ba- yeah, yeah triple barrel Baptist. And basically, they did the same thing. They like all right, check your lot number, and if it's in this group of lots, send it back. Send it back. We'll send you another one, and you know. Hopefully, no one will sue over the, you know, pain and distress of having a infected beer in their life. Yeah, I, I don't know how they'll <laughs> ever get through it. The trauma alone. <laughs> all right, so that's all we got for brew news today. Recommendations? What do you got for us, Ryan? Uh, my beer recommendations is Main Beer. Just anything from the Main Brewing Company. Just that, <laughs> Way to narrow idea. it down, buddy. <laughs> my favorite would be Peeper, and I prefer Peeper a little bit more than Mo. Just because, and there's no real reason, I just do. They're both like excellent. And yeah, I don't think you're going to go wrong with literally <laughs> anything. You'll you'll yeah. know them because they're the ones whose marketing consists of a plain white label. Exactly. It stands out. It looks pretty, and it's they. It, the beer is just great. I mean, it. Like I said, you can go wrong with none of their beer. Besides, if you want to have a beer for lunch and a beer for dinner, it you can't do any better than lunch and dinner. So <laughs> exactly. They're, they're yes, tailor-made yeah. for the purpose. I wish they had a breakfast. I, You know, if anybody who's had any of their stouts knows that even though they're known for IPAs and pale ales, they make really I, good stouts, so I would love never, to see them do one. Because they're just now expanding. They've expanded their brewery last year, so we're starting to get more here in North Carolina. So 20,000 barrels, yeah. and they cover basically the entire East Coast. Yeah. Like, so hopefully it, I will get some of their stouts soon. Yeah. yeah, they do really good stuff. Uh, so for mine, I actually have one that kind of took me by surprise. I had some friends over, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to call you out here, Will. Uh, Will Warren, who we've had on the show in the past, <laughs> came over to my house, brought over a crowler that he found in the refrigerator at work. We realized as we were drinking it that it actually came from his bar manager. Uh, <laughs> he might have stole it. Uh, <laughs> blowing up your spot, bud. It's the uh, it's from Academia Beer Company, which I, I knew nothing about. They're out of Athens, Georgia. I had never heard of. They apparently just... People from Athens, Georgia, of course, they would name there. Yeah, of course. It makes total sense. It's even Academia with a K, so it's it's kind of perfect. And I'm going to talk. I went to Carolina and from Chapel Hill, so yes. I know pretension when I see it, damn it. Oh, and they lean heavy on it. They they have an entire uh, part of their webpage built around philosophy of beer. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they're really leaning hard into this, but uh, so so apparently they only started up in October. I know very little about them, but we got their Hoppredigiac uh, Juicy Double IPA. We poured this thing out, and it looked like mud. It was just a hideous, over-hazy, slightly dark mess. One of the tastiest beers I think <laughs> I've ever had in my life. Like It was absolutely spectacular. Uh, bright and fruity, uh, strong hints of orange, pineapple, a little bit of guava. Uh, you know, the, the mouthfeel was just fantastic. It didn't have that milkshakey feel, but it did have oh, okay. kind of a juicy velvetiness to it. Uh, I can't really say a bad word about it other than its appearance and the fact that I have no idea how to get more. <laughs> but I would definitely recommend anybody who's heading down to Athens, definitely check them out. If they had a little more press on this thing, I definitely think it would be getting the kind of attention you see usually like Treehouse and Trillium beers get. It was that okay. good. Cool. Yeah. So uh, cider-wise, I'm going to have to cut in because uh, somebody has been sick most of the last <laughs> week and so wasn't uh, able to try any new ciders. Don't worry. I have a six-pack of new ciders sitting in the refrigerator right now. Nice. Seattle drink. Cider Company? or Seattle Cider, Argus. Dude, Argus uh, makes some really good stuff. From Reverend Nats. Yeah. Reverend Nats makes some really crazy stuff. <laughs> I like Reverend Nat. So I, the sacrilegious is probably you, my favorite. You know what? I, I see them a lot. Like, we have a local brewery, Ass Clown, who I, and, and they'll even describe themselves this way. They kind of throw shit at a wall and see what sticks, and about half their beer is is weird and, and kind of odd, and about half of it's really good. That's kind of Reverend Nat's for me. Sometimes their their cider is really just hard to drink. Other times it's absolutely spectacular. Yeah. And and they're they're comfortable with that. That's kind of been the Reverend Nat himself's whole thing since day one. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and recommend, speaking of Seattle Cider, their Basil Mint Hard Cider. I hadn't had that one yet. Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a semi-sweet cider. It uses mostly culinary apples. It's definitely uh, not not sweet, but it's not going to be cloying like you're going to get out of like an Angry Orchard. Uh, it's about 7% too, so it's got a decent enough backbone on it. The basil comes through absolutely beautifully. I would love to see basil used just in more beverages in general. I think it's just such a good culinary herb to use in. I've, I've had it in beer. Have you ever had the uh, Thai breaker from Thirsty Nomad right here in the city? No, I hadn't had that. One. Yeah, it's a uh, Thai basil uh, wit that okay. is probably the best beer they make. Really, really good. Um, the basil mint hard cider from Seattle Cider Company. Definitely check it out. It's not overpowering. It's not going to be licorice from the basil, but it's definitely going to come through and really kind of give you some good aromatics. The mint's a lot more subdued, which is not a bad thing. It mostly just yeah. acts to help complement and, and temper the basil. So I've really been impressed by it. Uh, and definitely recommend people uh, hunt it down. It's not going to be hard to find now that they finally rolled out in North Carolina. Uh, aside from that, what do you got for us that's non-beer related, my friend? The World Cup. It started a few days ago, and it's a lot of people compare the World Cup to the Olympics, and they're different in this regard. People watch the Olympics because the Olympics is an event you watch. Yeah, the Olympics is the Olympics. That's why you watch the Olympics. Yes. The World Cup is... A lot of people watch the World Cup for the same reason, but I'll, but most of the people who watch the World Cup are soccer fans. And you can tell the difference because you can tell the networks know the difference because they put the Olympics in prime time, even when they take place like during the day here on the East Coast. The World Cup, they're just like, fuck it, we'll show get we'll show matches <laughs> at eight o'clock in the morning. We're gonna get great ratings because yeah. these people are crazy and they will get up at seven o'clock in the morning to watch a soccer match. There is an Irish pub <laughs> right here in Charlotte that, like, the moment that they're able to serve alcohol, nine a.m., they're serving beer yep. and that place is packed wall to wall with a combination of expats and uh, yep. and American like <laughs> soccer fans is absolutely unbelievable. It's that way during Premier League during the World Cup. The, it's insanity. It, yeah, it's like the first two weeks are the matches are the is the group stage, so it's basically matches three matches a day for two weeks. And it's just, it's insane, honestly. <laughs> if you like watching people run across an enormous field back and forth without any real uh, real happenings, then it might be for you. Uh, I, I say that dismissively. <laughs> I actually played soccer throughout, like, all the way uh, like through high school. But a lot of love for the sport. It's never been my favorite to watch, but I started to gain a new appreciation for it. And I think part of that, you, I remember growing up, nobody in America watched soccer. Yeah. Like, everybody played it. Like, everybody grew up playing it as a kid, at least. Yeah. No one watched it. MLS could not seem to really get going well, but I swear to God, Premier League has exploded in just the last like three or four years. Yeah, I think the combination of MLS and the ubiquity of the Premier League on television in the United States has helped it. Because uh, MLS actually it has slowly turned soccer 
professionalized soccer in the same way that basketball, football, and baseball are professionalized. It's not completely done that, but it slowly started to turn it that way where kids grow up and they think, if I'm good enough, I can, I can actually make money doing this instead of if I'm good enough, I might be able to get a scholarship to go to college so then I can get a real job. <laughs> I, <laughs> if I must. <laughs> yeah. I do find yeah. it funny how in America we're talking about the fact that one sport hasn't become a major league sport and then we look at every other country and they yeah, have but, like yeah. only one sport they care about <laughs> yes like yeah. we are we it's easy to lose sight in the u.s like how nuts for pro sports we are like yeah. it's obscene yeah it is it yeah we are kind of yeah, we are of a yeah we're a professional the, sports is the fifth largest contributor to the u.s economy <laughs> take take that and run with it dude that's insane yeah I probably I say be, as I got for Father's Day a Bruins jersey. <laughs> they got you a Bruins jersey. Hell yeah, they got me a Bruins oh, you're, you're jersey. Bruins I'm fan. a Bruins fan. Yeah, I forgot that. I you thrilled. hate Boston, but yeah, you are a Bruins I, I hate fan. Boston, but I love all their teams other than the Patriots. <laughs> Don't you'll lose two hours of your day if you get me going on the Patriots. I I love the Bruins. Dude, it's a Dano Chara's jersey, man. Like, there's only about 45 minutes in the wintertime I'll be able to wear that thing, but it's worth it. I I am so thrilled. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you somewhere around i would say january slash february you'll get to wear it for like two days yep yep and i'm gonna wear it to checkers games i'm gonna be that asshole who's wearing the uh yeah because it's basically the same jersey as the p bruins the the uh, ahl uh, bruins team so when yeah. they come down here to play i'm going to that game i'm wearing that bruins jersey i will be the <laughs> loudest dude in there because you know i'm really noted for being quiet normally <laughs> they're still playing the checkers still play at bojangles right yeah they still okay. play at bojangles it's only like 10 minutes from my house it's yeah. a real easy trip yeah it's like three minutes from my current from my house yeah yeah i, I love bojangles coliseum yeah. man like yeah, you, you that place has been around forever it, it's actually the coliseum but they had to rename it once they built the other coliseum out on tyvola which they've since torn down <laughs> yeah because charlotte <laughs> charlotte forward thinking planning not not not, so not the strong suit in this town. So, <laughs> and for those of you from outside the city, you have no idea what we're talking about. Tough luck. Uh, we just did an entire episode last week where we uh, did a bunch of audio and visual and taste oriented stuff that none of you could experience. <laughs> we hate you. <laughs> All right. So for my uh, <laughs> for my non beer uh, related one, I'm going to go with the Alice Isn't Dead podcast. Have you heard about this, Ryan? No, I was trying to. I hadn't heard about this one. So it's from a. Uh, it's from a group uh, cult. It's the same people who do Night Vale Presents, oh, okay. which a lot of people have heard All about. Right, yeah. uh, the basic gist, it's a, it's a horror podcast, yeah. or, or almost more of like a suspense podcast, but the basic gist is that it comes in the form of CB radio communications from this girl, Keisha. She's a truck driver on America's back roads and highways, and from there, progressively weirder and creepier stuff starts happening. I have never heard a fiction podcast has been able inc- including some of night Vale presents other stuff which they have some very very yeah. good podcasts uh within the wires is really good night Vale is really good um but this one has created such an atmosphere that i'm a grown-ass man sitting in the protection of my vehicle you know in the middle of the day on a crowded highway and I, they've still managed to just get me like feeling like the the hairs on the back of my neck standing <laughs> up it's extremely well done well voice acted uh, they're just now, they're about halfway right now through their uh, third and final season of it. Uh, and, and so far, every season's been just as good as the one before. It's actually being made into a TV series on USA. So that'll okay. be something to keep. That's the first time I've ever heard of a podcast getting turned into a, a major television series. So it'll oh, be. No, you forgot shit my dad says. Was that from a podcast? It was either a podcast. No, it was a blog, I think. That's still pretty significant. That's still. Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. I, yeah. I learned something today. Uh, one way or the other, if, if you're into horror anything, definitely check it out. Even if you just like a good atmospheric fiction thing. like It really does a good job of taking uh, some of the tropes you'd expect, but rendering them in very new ways. And, and the, the way I kind of describe it, it's like, uh, imagine if the TV show Supernatural was taken completely seriously and not nearly as kitschy as it is. I say as I just finally finished the latest season, and I love it. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> no, it really does a good job of making the scale of America apparent and and lending a kind of haunting feel for just how big our country is. Yeah. So really well done. Definitely would recommend checking it out. So I think that's all we got for today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and close out. Uh, Ryan, what do you got for us? Uh, where can people find you online? You can find me at craftconsulting.beer. That's 
craftconsulting.beer for Craft Beer Consulting LLC, my company. And you can also find me, hopefully, with new stuff on beercounselor.net pretty soon. And you can find me at liquidassets.blog, in case you missed it. That's my blog. Uh, You can also find me at your local bar, probably passed out at the end of it. So, guys, we appreciate you joining us today. Uh, uh, Make sure you show up next time. Same bat channel, same bat place. I've lost complete control. Same bat time, same bat channel. I lost complete control. Yeah, I got a Batman (laughs) tattoo on my arm. You'd think I'd be able to remember that. Shut up, people. Uh, One way or the other, guys, thanks for joining us, and cheers. Sláinte.